This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I hope everyone has stayed safe and healthy during the pandemic, which is peaking again across the majority of the United States. And if you or a loved one is ill, I hope you are receiving the care and the love that you deserve. Since the last episode was published, the United States has begun reckoning once again with our past and present history of racism and discrimination. The murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer has ignited a new wave of protests and a wave of awareness in white America. The profiles of anti-racist activists have soared over the past months, the past month rather, and books that explore anti-racism are climbing the New York Times bestseller list and causes that have been around forever are receiving the attention and funding they've always deserved. While it is good that white Americans have begun examining their own whiteness and white supremacy, I am also certain that black Americans, indigenous Americans, and other people of color are confused and frustrated as to why it's taken us so long to see things for what they are. Even as the headlines die away and the spotlight of social media moves on to something else, real change will require lasting attention. With that in mind, I am re-releasing this interview I did with the author and activist Austin Channing Brown. Her book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, was published in 2018. It was recently chosen for Reese Witherspoon's book club and has spent the past few weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. Her words and witness were made for this moment and every moment. As the title of her book attests, she is still here, the black community is still here, has always been here, and has always deserved justice. Black Lives Matter. Issues of white supremacy, racial justice, and anti-racism are essential for evangelicals, exvangelicals, post-evangelicals, or anyone who has come from a white evangelical tradition and culture to reckon with. As I wrote in a February edition of my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, white evangelicals are told they are part of a great story and their life is to be in service to that story through faith and works. Too much of the story white evangelicals are told obfuscates the truth of history and the lived experience of so many marginalized people, and that's being far too generous, to be honest. The great story white evangelicals are truly called to in our era of history is to confront our own whiteness, reckon with the realities of white supremacy, and work toward justice. This episode was originally released on June 6, 2018. You can support Austin by buying her book, subscribing to her newsletter, Roll Call, and supporting her video series, The Next Question. Links to all these will be found in the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain, on Instagram at BRChastain underscore. You can also support support this show by signing up for a paid membership to the Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Just 800 paid subscribers would allow me to do this work full-time. If you're interested in in advertising on the show, 55% of ad revenue will be donated to the Brave Commons, which helps queer students on Christian college campuses. You can email me about opportunities at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. All right, let's get into it. Black Lives Matter. Everyone and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Austin Channing Brown. She is the author of the new and wonderful book, "I'm Still Here: Black, Digni- Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness." Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I'm really glad. I'm 
able to talk to you about your book. Your book is really phenomenal, and I've been sort of watching uh, everything on Twitter and everything, and seeing <laughs> you know seeing the accolades pour in, and they're all deserved, and they're all you know it's awesome to see this succeed in the way it is because it's it's like the perfect book for our time. It's not an easy book, but that's it's not easy times. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, the response is blowing me away. I really don't even know what to do with it, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I just it, it, I absolutely accept it because it's uh, you know it's 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 well deserved. So oh, you're so kind. Thanks. So let's talk a little bit about you um, and get a, get a little bit of a sense of really uh, where you're where you're from and everything. That's sort of where we start on this show is just getting a little bit of background. Um, I believe you're also a uh, a Midwesterner, right? I uh, am. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where did you grow up and what what was your sort of first few years and first exposure to religion like for you? Yeah. So I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. And um, my parents sent me to a private Christian school, um, like as early as preschool, like as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but we we weren't a church going family, so um, I had assumed that we were all Christians. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I went to a Christian school. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it turned out my parents actually sent me there just because it was the best education that they could they could find in the city at that time. Um, so that's actually kind of comical to me that mm-hmm. um, I was just like drinking up this religion and my parents really couldn't have cared less. I mean, <laughs> like, or at least it wasn't priority. I won't say they didn't care, but. Right. Um, so yeah, so I was... Um, reading illustrated Bibles and playing, um, Bible recitation games, um, (laughs) and, uh, learning all those cute little Bible story songs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I didn't memorize a Bible verse every Friday. Um, we had Bible class. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so yeah, it was, um, it was very much just, um, inundated in the curriculum. Um, and the school wasn't very large. I don't think I ever had a class that was more than maybe 20 to 25 students. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was also very personal. Like I knew all of my teachers really, really well. Um, and even though I was only one of a handful of black students in every class, because the classroom was so small, I really did still feel, felt perfectly comfortable. Um, I, I never walked into a classroom and felt like, um, I didn't belong there. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I was, um, I had no, I had no like pushback on what I, what I was learning. I was like, okay, so this is Jesus. This is God. He saved my sins. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was going with it. I was yeah. with him. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that's what you're being taught, that's, you know, that's what you're being taught as a kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I was totally with them. I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so what I, what I love about your book, um, is that like, really it doesn't pull any punches. Um, and the way in which you do that, like the first, first chapter, first line of your book is white people, (laughs) (laughs) white people are exhausting. And you, you share this anecdote from 
when you were young and you were at a library and, and then you had this experience where you learn about, um, about why your parents chose the name that they gave you. Right. Um, so I know this is, this could be a little bit of a teaser for people that haven't picked up your book yet. So <laughs> sure. if you could sort of retell that story, cause I think that's very, um, I mean the, the way you frame that and the way you sort of, the way you show that this is something you've, yeah. you've had experience with your entire life and, um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I had always known that my name was a quote unquote boy's name. Um, I was partly because of school. Um, you know, in your younger years, um, all the, all the girls will sit on one side and all the boys will sit on the other side of the room. Mm-hmm. And so during the first day of school, when teachers would do their roll call, they would always look to the opposite side of the room. And I'd be on the other side doing jumping jacks, trying to get them to look at me. (laughs) I'm over here. (laughs) And then the other thing was that the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s were like, um, everything got personalized. You know, it was like the little personalized keychain license plates and the personalized cups and you know what I mean? And so I would always go and try and find my name. And if my name was there, it was always blue for the boys. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why do these people not realize that? <laughs> right? <laughs> so I learned pretty quickly that Austin must be a boy's name because everyone treated it as such. Um, but there was, there was most people once they heard my name and realized it was me, um, were like, Oh, that's so interesting. Or, Oh, that's so cool. Or that's so unusual. But there was like this recovery moment, right? <laughs> they were like, huh, all right. Taking it in. Um, and this one day I had gone to the library, which we did often, and I was all ready to check out my little books. And I handed her my library card and the librarian said to me, uh, are you sure this is your card? And I hesitated for a second thinking, well, it could be my brother's card. It could be my mother's card. Like, I think I handed you my card, but I guess I can't be sure. Right. Right. And so, so she reads, but she, so she can tell that I'm hesitating. And she's like, the card says Austin. And I said, oh yeah, that's my card. That's me. She said, are you sure? And I was stumped again. I said, am I sure I'm Austin? <laughs> I was really like, I don't understand the question. Do you think I don't know my name? Like, I don't, I don't get it. And she really would like, would not stamp my little books. And I thought, ma'am, my name is Austin. That card says Austin. Give me my doggone books. I don't understand what the problem is. Right. And so I was so ticked. I uh, went over to my mother and I was like, mom, why did you give me this name? I don't understand. And so she started to tell me about my family's history and where they found the name. And I was like, ma, I already know this. That's not my question. My question is not, where did my name come from? My question is, why did you choose it? And so we sat down and she said, well, Austin, we knew that when people read your name, they would assume that you are a white male. And I was like, Oh, and she kept going. She said, you know, one day you're going to have to fill out applications. You're going to have to, you know, apply for a job or apply for college or, and she said, we just wanted to make sure that you could make it to the interview. She's like, once you, once you get to the interview, we're sure you'll blow everyone away. Like you're, you're so charismatic and you're so this and you're so that. And then she said it again, we just had to make sure you made it to the interview. Mm. And I was like, huh. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do with like the interview stuff. Like, 
the assumption of discrimination, that was like, it was, that was a little too much for me. And at that age, but my brain did scroll through every other time I had ever heard or met someone named Austin. And it was always a white little boy. And I was like, holy shit, she's right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like, I've never met another black Austin. How weird. Um, so it took me a while to like really understand what she was trying to tell me, but I did, I, what I understood in that moment was that my parents were trying to be strategic and they were trying to be strategic because I was black and because I was a girl and I didn't fully know what that meant, but I do think it was the first time that what I was trying to figure out about race and how race worked like it finally landed for me, even in just a small way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it wasn't that I was unaware that I was, you know, one of a handful of black kids. It wasn't that I couldn't, you know, kids figure out race really early. I just didn't know what it meant. And so that was the first time that I was like, oh, this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that seems that uh, you you come back to this theme in so many different ways in the book Mm -hmm. as far as like this, um, I, I believe that the term you use is like an assumption of universality yeah, that that's you, right. that's that with, right. within the educational system, yep. it was it manifested in this way that you, um, that your teachers expected you all to have the same experience. That's right. Yeah. White people are, um, are so used to being in dominant culture, mm-hmm. um, that it, it doesn't often occur to white folks that there are other legitimate ways of being. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and because whiteness doesn't think of itself as a race, it can only think of itself as normal or universal. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> whatever right. experience you're having, everybody else is having. And we're like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. And I think Christians have this really bad because we, because we have carried this, um, mantra that we are all the same and we are all one body and we are right like all these all these unifying messages that um cover over difference Mm -hmm. rather than embracing difference right yeah yeah like i don't know um i grew up in small town indiana so you know we sang like red and yellow black and white exactly that sort of thing that that seemed to seem to try to do uh something right something good i guess but but not yeah but um but yeah it absolutely those the the way in which um white white churches in particular like right i'm yeah um and and wesleyan background sort of for me for me personally and that's predominantly white so um yeah 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 and so yeah that's definitely it's it's that assumption that's there. Um, was that something that, that you, I'm, I'm curious how, how, like when, cause you went to a Christian college as well, right? I did. Oh, yeah. I, I have only ever attended Christian schools. So I went to a Catholic high school. So my mm. elementary school, um, and junior high was, um, run by assemblies of God. Okay. And then I went to a Catholic high school and then I went to a covenant college and then I went to a, um, Catholic, um, college to get my master's degree. Mm. 
Um, and the way it's, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me here. I'm sorry. Yeah, about you're that. asking about college. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got this overlap of, of, of a couple of different systems here. Um, right. You've got the educational system, and then you yep. overlay that with like some <laughs> religious dogma. Mm-hmm. Um, a whole lot of religious dogma. <laughs> <laughs> um, with with those sorts of things take, being taken into account, these you know being in these places that were that were dominantly white mm-hmm. what like where where did you see yourself reflected in in that at all or was it or was it mm. in was it in these other in these other spaces that you write about like being in in predominantly black churches sure 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 oh that's a great question yeah so i um you might be surprised to find i can be a little militant um <laughs> <laughs> and um so I, I, I was pretty used to claiming my space, you know, I, I didn't often walk into, and I think this is, this is part of what my parents were so intentional about doing, even with, through my name, that they were trying to say to me, wherever you are, you belong. Right. And, and, and we're preparing you for the hangups of other folks. Mm-hmm. Right? Not, there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Um, right. We're, we're prepping you for how other folks are going to trip. Um, but <laughs> you, but you need to know that you belong everywhere. Um, and so, so I, I have always carried a certain amount of pride, um, whether healthy or not, like in some respects, very healthy. And in some respects, maybe, maybe a little too much, um, when it turned into arrogance, Um, and so like, I remember being, so by the time I was 10 or at the age of 10, my parents started going to a black Baptist church and I just fell in love with that church. Lord have mercy. (laughs) Um, I was in love. It was the first time, um, that I had been around all black folks that I was in the majority, um, and that I had, experienced, um, both Christianity and my culture coming together. So I had briefly been in spaces that were quote unquote secular or that didn't have this like Christian overlay on top of it. Um, and been in all black spaces. So black neighborhoods or, um, my, my dad grew up in Akron. And so anytime we went there, um, it was definitely all black, but, um, to walk into a church and to have this Christianity that I was learning in school, but also have all this blackness <laughs> was like, holy smokes, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and I was really, really intentional. Um, I, I really did fall in love with preaching. I fell in love with communicating, as y'all can probably imagine hearing my, you know, black pastor compared to a white minister and my chapel services, very mm-hmm. different experience, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know? And so I was just, I just fell in love with this way of communicating with this way of moving people. Um, it was really extraordinary to me. And so the more I learned, um, about Jesus, about Bible stories, some I had heard, but some with a completely different context, completely different outcome connotation, you know, as I listened to my, my pastor unpack them. Mm -hmm. Um, by the time I got to high school, I was a little bit of a firecracker. 
And so I would sit in my religion classes and, um, <laughs> and I would listen to the other students who were Catholic struggle with um, discovering what Catholics actually believe and what they don't believe. So like basically what they learned in Sunday school versus what Catholicism actually looks like as an adulthood. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is so interesting. And I remember I would raise my hand. I'd be like, well, this is what Baptists think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, in my church, this is how we understand it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it was so so I I didn't have a whole lot of like devastation. um, And I was very comfortable with claiming my space. But that didn't make it less annoying when white folks tried to return to this notion of universality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, I just, I just really didn't appreciate that. And I think it got stronger in college because when you start making noise in college and there are no like parents around, um, <laughs> white students start responding with things like, well, why don't you just leave? Or why don't you just go to a different school? And, you know, I just didn't really appreciate that. So, um, so yeah, I was very comfortable claiming my space. And I think in college is where I started to question the system because by the time I was in college, that was when like being diverse really became popular. Um, and I remember it, maybe it always was, but I remember, um, the school being really, um, like it was part of their tagline, like we are multicultural, was <laughs> like yeah. across the billboard. Right? <laughs> like we heard it all the time. Right. And because of that, I had some expectations, you know, around m- mentorship, around being seen, around being taken care of, around being represented. Um, and when I got walked into this college and realized that those things weren't necessarily happening, um, yeah my little life took on a whole new level of militancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, uh, you, you do write in, in your, in your book that, that like within these, within these Baptist contexts, you said like Jesus sounded like a black person. Yeah. Um, and how, how like the, the way in which that was presented and the things that Jesus goes through in the gospel, that sounds like, um, that, that sounds like a black person. Um, totally. And then, um, you know, I'm, I live in Chicago now, so I like, uh, so as, and I think a lot about, I, I, similarly, I think a lot about institutions and and how things are presented and in Chicago, you know, it's a diverse area. There's a lot of like a lot of religious and ethnic makeups, like a a lot of that. Um, but then, um, it's also prone to a lot of like just the, the city itself is prone to segregation, that's right. um, by neighborhood, by by economics, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of factors there. Um, but again, you went to a covenant school, um, and and I don't know if you say the name of the school at all, but <laughs> or if, or if it's yeah, like, I think it's fine. I'm a little yeah. upset with them right now. Right? But yeah, they've got some fine. stuff going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it doesn't change that I learned a lot from them. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, I I used to do that with Indiana Wesleyan. So I went, mm-hmm. and, but then when, uh, you know, Pence Pence spoke at their commencement, and that so I, I I started talking a little more plainly after that. But, <laughs> I understand. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so at North Park, um, yep. here in the city, um, it's a covenant church. There's likely going to be this assumption of white culture 
If, right. You know, right. and a question I have for you as far as your experiences there and in places like that, sure. what does the presence of like people of color, um, in, in a population sort of do that seems to like mollify or, or make pe- make white leaders and participants sort of think that, um, well now, now we're, we're, <laughs> we're better, you know, like, <laughs> like, like this, yep. we're done, you know, like, yep. um, what is it that, that makes that seem like that's enough? Oh man, currently it's, it's, um, the, the credibility is built around numbers, Mm, right. Yeah. So if you can prove that you've got the right numbers, if you're over 20% or if you've got a certain number of languages that your students speak or, <laughs> you right. know, if you yeah. can proclaim the, the demographics of the neighborhood where you're located in or certain percentage of your faculty, um, you know, but all, all credibility seems to lie in, in the number. And I think what a lot of white folks really don't understand is that the quantity of persons of color does not equal the quality of our experience. Right. And that's what I know that like my class and the, at least the classes three ahead of me, I mean, one behind me were, were very intentional about saying to administration over and over and over again that you don't get to put my face on one of your billboards, um, but I don't get to see my face in the chapel service. Mm. That's not okay. Right. Um, you know, and so if, if we're going to talk about the fact that we're multicultural, then I need to see that show up. So when we gather together and worship, you can't just sing Chris Tomlin songs. That's not okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I need no. to hear some Fred Hammond. And, and my sister next to me would like us to sing in Spanish occasionally. And, you know, like we, right. we, we got to stretch this out. Um, and then in, in other ways too, you know, in faculty representation and the curriculum and um, the, the courses that were required to take and the courses that weren't, um, you know, we just, we were adamant about saying, if you're, if this is who you proclaim you're going to be, then you have to be in more than number. Mm-hmm. Um and I, and I think there's so many, that's, and that's not specific to North Park, right? Like, as you mentioned, that is, um, that's a structural issue. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It's so, not, it's not specific yeah, to, yeah. it's um, plenty of similar institutions. So many similar institutions um, that have not, uh, truthfully, that have not thought beyond what diversity can do for them. Mm-hmm. And that's really the bottom line. You right. know? Um, and I, I hope that as a result of this book, um, that institutions will begin to ask the question, but what is it costing people of color to be around us? And how can we be better? Mm-hmm. How can we really honor the dignity of the people of color who have chosen to be in ministry with us. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you speak to that in so many, so many different ways and like, they all like, they all overlap and I know we've only got like half an hour left. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so, you know, it's like, uh, um, but one of the, one of the key ways that, that I think you, you bring this up um, and I, there's lots of themes. There's things about like white fragility and white guilt sure. and sure. like, and this is again, um, this is again, just like not even centering your experience right now, which, um, but, but the, 
like the the ways in which like if if there's white leaders or predominantly white leaders right um one of the things that that you that you said was that white people tend to try to turn a conversation about race into a debate about race that's right which i thought was a really salient um distinction um and i'd i'd love to sort of to hear you say a little bit more about that too and just how like what the difference is between between like someone trying to de- to debate like the reality of racism yep. and yep. and actually having a conversation that assumes that racism is a problem um, right i think you i think you actually just nailed it so white a lot of white folks grow up um one either hearing that there isn't a problem right that there used to be and then martin luther king solved it and now we're all good <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Like short yeah. version of the story. Right. Yeah. Um, um, or they grew up actually listening to racist things while also being told that you just need to be polite or you just need to be kind. Right. Like, like we only say these things in the house, but when you leave this house, you need to be nice to people. Mm. And yeah. that that's all that's required. Right. Just, right. just be nice. Just don't mention race. We're just, we're just going to be colorblind. Right? Like all these messages. Um, and, and then over, over top of that, there are all these, um, stereotypes, racial biases, um, uh, media messages, um, about black people and others, right. And other people of color. And so that might be that, um, black men are dangerous, or that black women are always angry, or that um, uh, Latinas are spicy and sassy, or um, Asian Americans are nerdy and studious, um, right? But there's mm-hmm. there's all these right these these overlays of um, of what white America is soaking up. And so what happens is um, whiteness often feels like it's right. (laughs) So there's a conversation about race that's happening and people of color are sharing their lived experiences and are sharing what they have studied, what they have read, what they have, Right. right? And then whiteness pops up and says, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not right. That's, that's incorrect. And I know that's incorrect because I served in a black community for a year when I was in college. Or and I, I know that's incorrect because I have a black friend who told me so. Or I, I, but I once heard Oprah agree with me on this thing, right? And it becomes mm-hmm. a way to reinforce what whiteness has already believes about race as opposed to being humble and saying, hmm, I think I have probably only gotten one story about race. And I would really like to hear the other side of the story. Yeah. I would really like to hear about other folks' experience. I would, I would really like to learn more about history. I would really like to understand more about what theology looks like in a black church or in, um, in uh <sighs> In a context that is completely different from mine. Right. And so often that humility 
is lacking. And, and, and that's what white supremacy is, right? White supremacy is, is whiteness knows best. Whiteness is right. Whiteness is holy. Whiteness is right. And mm-hmm. so to attempt to step out of that and practice humility is, is a big step. It's a really, really big step. Yeah. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. And it's a, a bridge too far for some people, which it's true. It's yeah. true. And you know what? I just thought about this. The truth is, is that it's, it has to be two steps, right? To even get to this, because one is the humility that you might not know. Mm-hmm. And the other though, is that people of color might just have something you need to learn. Right. Right. So it's actually this two step process. Um, that requires, it requires combating white supremacy right from the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about your experience in, in addressing that. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the chapter, but you yeah, talk okay. about leading your, um, leading a class and then this dude just stewing in the, <laughs> stewing in the mm-hmm. back, waiting, yeah. waiting to, to, to give you what for. That's right. You know, That's and, right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then another instance at, at a place where you, where you were working, um, just all these instances of, of people shoving their, their whiteness and their correctness down. That's right. Like, that's, yeah, um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and it's exactly what we just said, right? So here's my body. This is what my parents were trying to save me from, right? Mm-hmm. Here's my name that's written on a website or written on a graphic that says, you know, that assumes this white man is going to be teaching this class about race, right? And white men are like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> right? A white guy is going to teach this class about race. And then they walk in and they're like, you're not a white guy. And they can't get over it, right? So here's a black woman talking about what it's like to be black in America and is challenging whiteness and is challenging um, the folks in the room to stay in a position of learning and unlearning. And there are some folks who literally cannot handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it does seem to be that, that sense that that you said earlier in the conversation that, that there's a default dominance that that's right. The people are uh, the white white people are that's right expecting to to have that's right um, and so it has to reassert itself and right. that's when you get into the white fragility white aggression like this there is a there is a very deep desire for whiteness to say you're wrong and i'm right mm-hmm. um and i'll do whatever i have to do in order to reassert that dominance right mm-hmm. yeah and that's where like just thinking, thinking through all the all the things you you say in your book, as far as um, the barriers that people have to, uh, like the barriers that people have to even having a conversation or even acknowledging the reality of something, right? Um, acknowledging the reality of your your lived experience, mm-hmm. um, it like white white guilt, white fragility, like all of that. That's just a refusal to even have to. It's just an outright refusal to think or, or to like, yeah. it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I think about this as far as like 
or trying to think of how how to a talk to other white people about things like this. Right. Um, right. And the, the main thing that I try to do is have people like you talk. Like, because <laughs> what, what the hell do I know? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, what the hell do I know? So that's why you know, like, I'd rather ask you questions. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a both and, you know, after that particular situation with the the guy who um, blew up in the middle of the class or after the class, mm-hmm. um, I went home and told my husband about it because he wasn't there that night. And, and I told him how, you know, even though I tried to keep my voice even, even though I tried to stay calm, I even dropped my voice like octaves and octaves to try and to try and like will him to come down, you right. know, and no matter what I did, it just didn't work. And then, um, one of my white coworkers, white male coworkers came over and said, basically, why don't I try? <laughs> basically what happened. And, and, and the two of them walked away to the other side of the room and he instantly calmed down talking to him. Right. And so I went home and told my husband and my husband said, you know what, Austin, some some white folks are so sick, are so so full of racism, um, that the medicine you offer them isn't enough. And there's going to be some folks who are who are so who are so sick that the only medicine they can receive is from other white people. Mm-hmm. And I have had to really really take that to heart that there are some folks that are only initially are only going to hear the other voices of other white people and that they'll need to see it modeled how other white people are able to listen, are able to um, practice humility, are able to um, not, not just um, like submit in um, and like a painful painful oh my gosh this hurts so much kind of wait right but to see the enthusiasm of white folks who are learning and Mm -hmm. who are enlivened by this discussion and who feel fully awake because of this discussion you know i i think um i think there are some some white folks who really 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 have to see what other white folks are doing um at least initially yeah so i think i think it's a both and i i think White folks definitely, you know, have to continue to listen to to people of color and amplify our voices. But there really are some voices that are never going to hear me because I am a black woman. Yeah, and that's that's. I mean, it's too bad for them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Uh, so what I mean with 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 things like that and like. You're very passionate about this. This is something that you've written an entire book about. Like, uh, and at the same time, it's again, what do you do to like sort of center your yourself instead of like, like how, how do you, I guess, balance this entering these d- difficult d- discussions with mm. like also just being able to to celebrate who you are, you know, mm, because mm-hmm. b- because that's because you know that's a lot of you're, you're taking on a lot of emotional labor, a lot of, you know, and you, 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 you talk about this in your book as far as how you, um, how like you're not here to, you're not a priest for white guilt, um, you know, which is like, and how, and you talk about the, the experience of being a stand in for someone else's, um, trying to assuage their, 
you know, yep. to pardon them, <laughs> which are like, you know, damn it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, anyways, <laughs> and, uh, um, so like there's this, there's this balance of, of you, you have this very hard work that you're doing. Uh, yeah. and then on top of that, you, you, you need to take care of yourself too. So like, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. How, how does that, how, how does that factor in? And, and like to other people of, to other people of color that you, that are also going to read this book and, you know, sort sure. of resonate in that they are also working in predominantly white spaces, even yeah. religious ones yeah. that, that, that might have this. What, um, how do you sort of approach those sorts of things? Yeah, it's really been a journey for me trying to, trying to figure this out. Um, and, um, at different points in my life, different things have worked. So, um, so I've had jobs where my, my, where the job was figuring out diversity stuff, right. Whether that's trainings or classes or, you know, crunching numbers, like whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to be clear about, um, how much time I could devote to that. Um, what the expectations were from my supervisors, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just creating really clear boundaries. Um, and then there are other places where I've worked with diversity has not been part of my like job description. Um, but I was still like writing. So I was doing, you know, racial justice stuff in my free time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I refused to do it at work. I was like, yeah. nope, I'm not going to come speak at your thing. <laughs> like, nope, 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 nope. Right? And I used to be like, here's here's where I teach a class. Like, here's where I do this in my free time. And if you want to hear me talk about race, you should come to this class. That's what you should do. Um, because, because for me, that was a very clear boundary. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not getting paid. I'm getting paid for this job over here. Um, you're not paying me to be a diversity person. And so... Right. Um, so yeah, so trying to come up with really clear boundaries. And then the other thing I'll say that's been big for me is figuring out who my audience is Mm -hmm. because not all, um, um, how do I say this? We're all on different points in our journey. Yeah. Right. There are some people who are still being convinced. There are other folks who woke up because of black lives matter. There's other folks who woke up after Trump. There's other, right. Like people can be all along this journey. Mm-hmm. And, and I am very clear that at this point in my life, I am talking to um, what I call the 2.0 folks, right? The <laughs> folks who have, who have already started doing the work, who are already committed, who have been in this work for a little while and are asking the question, what's next? Um, which is <laughs> honestly, which is why I didn't expect this book to be nearly as popular as it is. Um, that's why the first sentence is why people can be exhausting because I was talking to folks who um, who have been doing this work long enough to know exactly what I mean by that, mm-hmm. right? Who who aren't offended by it. Who, in fact, typically when I get before an audience and I say that first sentence, the entire audience laughs, including white people, <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> because they know exactly what I mean, right? Because they've been in the room where that guy has blown up, and they've been in the room where you know someone decided to stand up and and quote Wikipedia as their like source for shooting down the expert, um, you know, like other white people who have been in the rooms with these conversations are like, yep, I don't understand. I don't know why they feel so exhausting. Um, (laughs) you know, and so, so I think part of it is getting real clear about who your audience is 
and then figuring out what kind of self-care, what kind of boundaries are required in order to um, work with that audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and uh, another selling another item for the book. There is a whole chapter about that too. A short yes. interlude. <laughs> yes, 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 too. yes. Because I really care about people of color who do this work. Right. I yeah. really, really do. Yeah. Um, oh shoot! And sorry, I don't. I, this 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 is a little bit of an aside. I, I apologize. Okay. It's just popped into my head yeah. <laughs> while I'm thinking of another thing here. But the comedian. Have you ever heard? Uh, uh, Hurry Kundabalu. He has got a new. No. Uh, anyways, he, he's he um is I apologize. I'm not sure whether he's Pakistani or Indian. Okay. Um, but he's Indian, uh, Pakistani or Indian American, and I believe he's Indian. Uh, he has a whole he he talks a lot about um race in his standup. Okay. Um, and he he calls he's like I know white some white people are okay, but then he. Uh, but he's like, when I, if you think I'm talking about what you, when I say white people, I mean you, (laughs) 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 I mean, (laughs) uh, and so anyways, I'm sorry that that totally just randomly popped into my head. Um, Absolutely perfect. I need to go find it. And yes. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) and then he, he, he goes further and he's like, some some of you are okay, but the ones that aren't let's let's not even call them white people. Let's call them <laughs> let's let's call them white demons. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, he's he's got a new thing on Netflix, and he's also got a. Anyway, I'm I'm probably I'll probably end up cutting this part out because it's not about your book, but, <laughs> but it, it, it it popped into my head there for a second. And I, I am absolutely gonna go look it up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I, I absolutely admire how much you've put your, put your own experience into this book and it is a memoir. It's a memoir about something that absolutely has to be talked about. Um, and how one, one line that, that jumped out to me is, um, going back to earlier in your, earlier in your life when you were sort of witnessing, a fellow student in high school talk about how she didn't get into her college that she wanted because uh, of affirmative action. Like that just had to be it. Um, and uh, and the, what you write is like a, a lack of confrontation did her no favors. Yeah. Um, and the other sort of theme that I really uh, that I that I really liked that you also uh, talked about in that is that um, this is later in the book. Uh, but you you talk about how like anger is not necessarily bad, um, and right. I think that like within evangelical circles, uh, you you got to play nice. Like like that's even that's part of the culture. Like um, you're expected to to forgive quickly, or to not yes. be or to not be angry at all, um, and. I think that a lot of people that are within circles like this, like whether it's about some, whether it includes race as as part of the contributing factor or not, um, within evangelical circles, if they feel dissatisfied or if they see something that isn't just happening, um, Mm -hmm. they get angry, but then they are taught to distrust that anger. Um, Right. But what I, 
what I just absolutely love about your entire book is that like you you don't shy away from those confrontations. You don't shy away oh, from yeah. talking about things as they are. Um, so what what do you what do you hope to sort of see in just talking specifically about like within um, religious circles, like as we, as we, as we talk right, as we talk right now, like there's a resolution in front of the Southern Baptist convention to like Mm -hmm. condemn Mm -hmm. social justice. Like, like, so we've got some really regressive beliefs like being propagated. Right. Um, So keeping in mind that like we can't not confront these things and people are are not going to be, you know, even keel about it all the time. That's right. That's right. uh, And it's wrong. I think it's important for us to remember that it's always been this way. Yeah. Um, You know, it's just a lot of white folks are only just waking up to it and only just realizing the level of animosity that exists around this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But in slavery, right, there were folks who were using the Bible to promote slavery and to say, this is what God wants. And there were folks using the Bible to say, Nope, actually, I don't think so. I think God is a liberator. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the civil rights movement, right? There were, right. it was birthed in the church, and yet there were white churches who were saying, nope, here's, here's where I can prove that segregation is exactly what God wants. Here's where I can prove that black people are inferior. Here's where I can, here's where I can show it to you. Um, and so even now, as, as there are folks who are using the Bible to say, um, that this is not an issue you should care about, that gives us all the more reason for why we must proclaim even louder um, that God is a God of love and that God loves all bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if we don't love all bodies, then we must question whether we love God. Um, and I think, I think we talk a lot about how hard the conversation is, how hard the work is. And that's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't fulfilling. That doesn't mean that it isn't life-giving. That doesn't mean that it hasn't reaped incredible rewards in terms of relationship, in terms of victories, in terms of experiencing change, um, in terms of transforming our lives. And I think I think we all have to do a better job of telling that story. You know, it would almost be like we told the story of Jesus dying for our sins, but don't tell that he was also resurrected. Mm -hmm. You know, like we we do need to tell the hard part, but we got to tell the good part too. (laughs) There are are more good parts. We got to talk about the good parts. Um, Because I think people need to know that we're inviting them into more um, more than just sacrifice, right? That we're inviting them into wholeness, that we're inviting them into relationship, that we're inviting them into, um, a passionate purpose that we're, you know, we're inviting them into something beyond what they could possibly expect, and that is so much better than the exclusion and the mm-hmm. walls and the boundaries and the myths and the stereotypes and the fear that there's so like love is so much better to experience than fear. And so I hope what the church does um, 
is read my words, listens to other people of color around them, right? Because my experience is only one. And so I hope that people will be curious about um, the other people of color that they're already in relationship with and will be as humble as they were reading my words to listen to the people around them and to link arms with people of color and say, I doing nothing is no longer an option for me. So let's do something together mm-hmm. and to follow the lead of the people of color around them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a, a wonderful sort of <laughs> hopeful note too. Um, and I know that things aren't always hopeful and things don't always end <laughs> hopefully, you know, but, but we should capture it when it happens. Yeah, that's right. And that's, <laughs> and so, yeah. And I, I know you, you've, you've got to be going here in a minute. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I do just want to thank you again for, for writing the book for, um, for, Long, letting me talk to you and pepper you with questions oh my gosh, <laughs> for, yes, yes. for a little bit. And I, um, I do want to recommend people also, if you do like audiobooks, you, you did also read your own words and I, I listened to it as well. Um, did you? Yeah, do I and, sound okay? Oh, you sound great. And, oh, and it's, it's wonderful. And I think my voice always sounds so funny in my head. You know, it sounds I, so, I'm like, is that what I sound like for real? <laughs> yeah. That's who knew that's, that's yeah. That's my experience too. I don't, <laughs> I, I'm yeah. I don't know if you ever get used to it. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't think I will. But, uh, I don't think I will. Um, yeah. And I, I, I love that too, just because I, you know, this is such a personal work and to hear you yeah. read it yourself yeah. was, um, was really, uh, really powerful. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> so, uh, Austin, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, where can people find your book? Where can they find find out more about you? Um, anything else you'd like to plug? Yeah, yeah. So my website is austinchaining.com, and I've got a page dedicated to my book and all the places you can find it. Um, but it's, you know, all the traditional places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Looks a Million, um, and um, – Hopefully your independent bookstore, (laughs) (laughs) go check, go see if it's there, Yeah. (laughs) order it if it's not. Um, and then I'm on, um, just three social media platforms. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Austin Channing and I'm on Facebook with my full name, Austin Channing Brown. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, coming on the show and and sharing a little bit about, about your story and and your book. Oh, my pleasure.